and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another Studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, this week we're sending our best wishes to Jeff Baldwin, the host of this show, who we hope is back hosting once again on this Studcast very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet, which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring and we step back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And happy Memorial Day weekend, Ron. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate that. And uh, it was a very good one. Tennessee has been beautiful and uh, it's uh, it's uh, nice to be here and uh, kind of nice to see the country opening back up a little bit. and. Now, looking forward to this one today. We got a pretty darn good show today. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground. Better get that horse saddled up, my man. That sounds awesome, Ron. Where are we headed to this week? Well, we're going to be entering the first week in uh, June, 1976. So uh, we're going to be talking about Friday night, June the fourth, in particular, which turned turned out to be a pretty shocking evening for wrestling fans in Knoxville. Uh, in fact, I got a little nickname for this Friday night because it's so different than what the rest have been. As I call it, the Southeastern Slaughter. As we go through this night, uh, this program, and we talk about it, I think fans maybe will pretty much agree with me. It's a pretty nasty night. So actually, no less than three top guys get hurt in this night's card and uh, legitimately hurt. We're going to take a look at the highlights of the TV show of the Saturday before the June 4th card. That's the Saturday TV that's promoting this card. And we're going to talk about the card itself, obviously. We're going to talk about the results of the card. And uh, and I've got my third straight Australian story uh, in my tribute for this month to Jim Barnett, who is on the Super Stud cast. And I'm going to do my third Aussie story this month. And uh, then we're going to go to a pretty interesting learning tree question. and the question, basic question is, uh, what are some of the common reasons, good or bad, as to why a wrestler would put on a mask? Sound like a simple question, but, uh, you know, this, this is pretty good. It kind of opens the door for a lot of discussion. Indeed. All right, listen, it sounds like a variety show. You got everything built into this thing except the song and dance, and maybe that's going to happen too. All right, it sounds like a great one, so we're saddled up. Let's get rolling. Okay, my man. So uh, before we get to the Friday, January 4th card in Knoxville, 
I want to focus on that television program, the Saturday before, which was on May 29th. And I might add that uh, this TV show is going to take place about almost exactly 44 years ago from today that we are recording this studcast. So we're still in that same time frame, except 44 years later. But the TV on that Saturday had the video highlights of three matches from the night before Knoxville. Now, that was not the show of May 28th these videos are coming from. Uh, so the first video was a highly edited, it was like a five-minute segment of a one-hour time limit draw match that Dick Steinborn and I had for my Southeastern Championship. It was an all-baby face match, obviously, two baby faces. And this match, that it's edited from one hour to five minutes, basically. It just shows highlights. It then shows probably the last one minute of the match in which there's back and forth and back and forth, and I'm almost beating him. He's almost beating me. I mean, it's really a tremendous one-hour match, but it's edited down to five minutes. We're going to put it into the personality profile of that TV show, and which means it's going to be in the middle of the program. And uh, we're going to give it some special attention. And the reason is it'll be the first and the only time ever in Southeastern wrestling that two baby faces wrestled one hour and 45 minutes in consecutive weeks, and there was not a winner. We had wrestled 45 minutes to a draw the week before. Uh, on this program, this video is going to show a one-hour match to a draw that we had the following week. So both Dick Steinborn and I are going to join Les for the profile. It's going to be done live in front of the fans. Uh, the video is pretty fantastic. Uh, you know, it was, it was full, obviously, of a lot of good sportsmanship. There wasn't a single punch thrown in this match. There was a lot of handshakes after the great moves. I mean, Steinborn's a tremendous wrestler, and I was fairly decent. And, uh, you know, we, we we were up and down and back and forth, and uh, we finished uh, both coming up on our feet at the same time. And lots of times we shook hands, which was uh, – and the fans really loved that. Uh, there were some big bumps in this match. Uh, there were a lot of near pinfalls in the match. And at the last two minutes of this match, the entire stadium full, the amphitheater full of people were on their feet for the last two minutes of it. The match is going to be returning again. That's what we're talking about on this profile. We're going to come back and wrestle for a third straight week in a row. This time, it's going to be for 90 minutes. I've never heard of one going over 90 minutes. So we've done 45. We've done an hour. Now we're going to put this one at 90 minutes. And this time, it's not just going to be for my belt. He is the Mid-American champion. It's going to be for his belt as well. So whoever wins this is going to be the, both the Southeastern and the Mid-American champion at the same time. Uh, obviously, uh, we shook hands before the profile even started. And we shook hands again at the finish of it, wished each other luck the following Friday night. So next segment on the show is General Homer Odell and his men, Tor Tanaka and Norvell Austin. and. Uh, we're watching a video of tag match from the night before. You've got Ron Wright and Don Carson teaming for the first time ever against the two men, Tor Tanaka and Norvell Austin, Homer's men, basically. And it showed a brawl breakout after the five of them had their match, and the match was over. The match was won by Carson and, and Ron Wright, but then they started fighting after it was over, and they probably had a wilder match after it was over than the match itself. 
And uh, then Les started explaining, uh, you know, they watched a little bit of this video. Then Les started explaining the unusual match that Southeastern had come up with for the next Friday night. It was going to be the same guys in the ring, but this time there's going to be all five of them in the match. So uh, it's going to be a team of two against a team of three. So it was really an unusual deal. You got uh, it's a five man tag match Ron Wright and Don Carson against Homer O'Dell, Tor Tanaka, and Norvell Austin. And it's not just a one fall match, but it's a two out of three fall, five man tag. So let's ask Homer what he thought about the concept after he had explained the type of match they were going to be wrestling in the next week. And Homer blew off the question. He changed the subject right away. And uh, and he suddenly got very angry about, about what he had seen on the personality profile, which had just ended the segment before he was on uh, watching this video. And, and if you think back, uh, me and Dick Steinborn's on there. Uh, we're talking about the Southeastern Championship match and the Mid-American Championship match. Uh, and he went really off Homer, man. He tore into Southeastern wrestling officials, talked about them, you know, allowing two pretty boys. <laughs> he, he talking about Ron Fuller and Dick Steinborn, the way he put it, to spend those three weeks against each other in a stupid scientific and so-called clean wrestling match. He's like, who wants to see that kind of a match, right? So, uh, he said, basically, you know, I've been demanding out here for weeks that my undefeated Tor Tanaka gets a shot at either of those titles. And obviously, it looks like to me it's never going to happen. And, uh, and then he says, why is that, Les Thatcher? Why the heck is it not going to happen? Why is my man not getting a shot at any championships? And then Les started to answer, but he just continued on. He interrupted him. He said, the Southeastern officials forced me eight days ago to get in the ring by myself with Don Carson and his loaded black glove. And uh, then he pulled off his army helmet, and, and he said, uh, look at this, look at this. And he pointed at his face, and he, there was a cut above his eye where he had gotten cut on the match with Don Carson, and he had some stitches that were still in his eye, probably about to be taken out the next day. He probably kept them in there a day longer so he could show it on TV. So he, you know, he pointed at his face and said, look at these, look at these, you know, and then he kept ranting. He didn't allow Les to say anything, you know, and then he says, I'm a good-looking man. <laughs> well, Homer was about anything but a good-looking man. But anyway, Homer says, I'm a good-looking man. And then, uh, you know, I, I can't believe that, the, that these Southeastern people have done this to me. You know, they've, they've hurt my looks, you know. And he said, here I am. I'm still nursing 10 stitches over my right eye. And, he, and then he asked Les again, why? You know, and then Les can't answer it. He just keeps going. He says, because Tanaka hurt Southeastern's puppet champion, Don Carson. You know, he says, that's why I got the busted eye. And that's why they're mad at me, you know, is because the Naka's hurt. They're taking care of Ron Fuller and Dick Steinborn and now Don Carson. So he's really ranting here. And Les is kind of letting him roll. He can't stop him. And he, he finally ends up saying, I promise you and your so-called Southeastern officials, he's talking to Les, that after next Friday night, there are going to be some championship belts available for my men to get their hands on. Well, Les was like, you know, you could see him kind of sit up like, what in the heck does that mean? You know, so he was obviously concerned and and uh, and he tried to find out what he meant. You know, he asked him, he said, wait a minute, Homer, that sounds like a threat. And uh, Homer didn't even answer him. He just got his men and he said, let's go. And he left the set. So, you know, he, he didn't really talk about his five man tag. 
he just spent the time talking about me and Dick Steinborn and the Southeastern officials. Heisman didn't get a chance at championship. And then he comes out with this half-assed threat here, you know, about what's going to happen next Friday night. So last segment on this TV show, just one other highlight, Rob and Jimmy are watching the video where they beat the Avengers. Okay, And this is the second time. The Dick Dunn and Leon Baxter, another one of those titles, Rob and Jimmy's title against the mask, the new mask tag team, the Avengers. And this time Dunn and Tarzan Baxter lose again. And this is the second time they've unmasked in five weeks. So, And then the next Friday night on June the 4th, uh, Rob and Jimmy are booked to defend their Southeastern titles against another new mask team. It's called the Super Avengers. So <laughs> Rob and Jimmy go, wait a minute, Les, you know, they go, now, you don't tell me who are the new Avengers, the super Avengers. Right. So, you know, Les says, well, guys, I don't know. I've never seen him. Dick Dunn wasn't on the TV. Tarzan Baxter wasn't on the TV. And neither were these super Avengers on the TV. So, you know, it left it as kind of a mystery about who they're wrestling again. But surely to God, that can't be the dumbass Dick Dunn and, and Tarzan Baxter putting on a, another outfit and another set of masks. Right. So, so let's take a look at the entire card for that Friday night, June the 4th, 1976. Fans had no idea that night that this was not to be forgotten night for fans and for me, for Steinborn and for Don Carson, especially. So the opening match on this night is Don Wright, uh, Ron's brother, against Don Lambert. And Wright's about 75 pounds lighter than Don Lambert. And, uh, you know, but he's got a lot more experience that Lambert does, and Don Wright's going to beat Don Lambert in the first match. Second match was an evenly matched babyface pair. Butch Malone, who was pretty darn popular at this point, facing another kid that's an up-and-coming babyface, Mike Stallings. And they wrestled to a 20-minute time limit draw, and they both showed a great deal of development uh, in their skills. I was really impressed. I watched all this match because I wanted to see how these two young guys handled this. And I don't know which one of them called the match, I didn't talk to them about that. I kind of let them decide that. I like to let guys do that, uh, make up their own mind who's going to call the match. And usually it's always a heel. But in this case where you got two young baby faces, I didn't know who called the match, but whoever it was did a hell of a job. And I could tell that uh, whoever it was, he was on his way up. I'm pretty sure that Mike Stallings called the match. Uh, but the fans enjoyed it either way. And uh, I should have looked forward. And uh, and the fans all look forward to the last match. Uh, oddly enough, there's two babyface matches and a five-match card. I mean, wrestling is becoming the thing in Southeastern, and that's kind of what I wanted to do once I came there. So there was basically three main events on this card. The first tag match was a Southeastern Tag Championship match, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden defending their titles against this new mass team called the Super Avengers. And Rob and Jimmy went to the ring first with their belts, and they got a great ovation, obviously, from the big crowd, another big crowd in the amphitheater. And when the Super Avengers came out of the dressing room door, the crowd instantly recognized them. Here we go again. Even though they were in totally different masks and totally different outfits, everybody knew who it was instantly. <laughs> and I kind of, yeah, it's just crazy, you know, you, do, you wouldn't figure that, uh, you know, that people would react at this point. but. Uh, I mean, it seemed like the crowd hated them more than ever, you know, that they were out there just trying to insult the crowd, you know, by continually coming back 
as a new team and another new team, you know, like uh, people weren't going to know who they were. So uh, it was good. Uh, I couldn't believe how loud the crowd was screaming at him and booing him. It was like, wow, they got more heat now than they ever had. But it was going to be the very last time that Dick Dunn and Tarzan Baxter would ever wrestle in a tag match in Knoxville. Robert and Jimmy, they won. The crowd erupted as if they'd beat the world champions. I mean, it was all over. Rob and Jim beat them. You know, it was like the crowd went crazy. Like, well, you know, it was just amazing how much heat they had gotten, uh, these two guys, just trying to make fools out of the fans. It was good. It was psychology-wise for me. It was really an important little lesson. I was like, Dace, there's a lot more ways to get heat than I thought. So the next match is that five-man tag that we talked about. And that's Homer Odell toward Tanaka and Orville Austin. And they're wrestling against Ron Wright and Don Carson. Scheduled for two out of three falls. And the fans really enjoyed the beginning of this match because Carson and Wright were wrestling like they'd been working as a team for most of their lives. And they took the first fall over Norville Austin, probably around 15-minute mark. So then they started in the second fall, and uh, Homer and his men kind of in that second fall trapped Ron Wright back in their corner. And they kept him there for a lot of that match. Uh, they kept him down. They worked his leg. Tanaka finally opened him up. Tanaka chopped him in the forehead and a couple of shots, and it didn't take much. Ron Wright had had that many blade jobs and chisel cuts and all those. His skin was real thin, and mm-hmm. it didn't take much for Tanaka to open him up. So Ron started bleeding, uh, but he was fighting like crazy. He kept trying to make it to Carson, make that saving tag, and uh, they kept him back. The three of them kept pulling him back into his corner. And, you know, they were all three beating the hell out of him, and, uh, you know, Carson just stood there. He wasn't making any attempt to go and help him. And the fans started to get a little perturbed with Don at this point in the second fall. So uh, Wright fought away, and he dived for a tag. And uh, when he did, Carson walked down the apron away from him, wouldn't make the tag. So right then, the you know, the fans, they started to really turn on Carson at that point. They're like, now, wait a minute. It's pretty obvious what's going on. Yeah. So Ron fought back with against the three of them. They drug him back over their corner and then finally fought away again. And uh, he reached up to make a tag. He was really, he was all bloody. He was, he'd been in the ring for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. They'd been beating the heck out of him. And this time Carson just jumped off the apron, and turned his back to him. Boy, the crowd erupted. It was like, wow, they, they weren't going to stand for that. So Some of the fans up in the ringside area, which was on a big raised concrete platform in this amphitheater, uh, they got out of their chairs and started going toward the ring. And the police had to come and grab some people at that point. So, you know, they drug right back while this is going on and Carson's down there and the fans are really getting on him at this point. The three of them drug Ron right back and, uh, and he fought his way out again. But this time, you know, there was no Carson there. Carson had jumped off the apron, turned his back, and this time he didn't even get back on the apron. And when Wright fought to the corner, he just turned and started to walk to the dressing room. Well, the crowd is really, really mad at this point. Homer and his guys, they just stand there. Wright's kind of hanging over the top rope and watching him walk to the dressing room. And Wright just rolled out on the floor, and he took off after him. And uh, Carson didn't see him. The crowd had kind of surged in and cut off the aisleway so that Carson couldn't get to the dressing room. And he's really focused on the crowd. Ron Wright tackles him. About knee high, hit him. And Carson went down. They both went down on the concrete. But Carson was hurt. 
and you could tell he was hurt. And he screamed pretty darn loud. I could hear him way back by my dressing room. As they both went on the concrete, and Carson grabbed his knee. He was in real pain. Police kept trying to back the fans away, but it was pretty wild at this point. I mean, you know, no emphasis on the ring anymore. Now it's on Ron Wright and Don Carson fighting up in the ringside area, uh, going back toward the dressing room. Cops are trying to get the people back, and Ron Wright gets his hands on somebody's chair, one of the ringsiders' chair, and he folds that chair up, and Carson's still laying on the ground. He never got up after Wright tackled him. And he's laying on the ground, and Ron Wright took that chair, and he smashed it across Carson's knee. And uh, Carson never got up, period, after that. And uh, Homer and his men, they went out for Wright. And Tanaka made the first move toward the crowd, and Tanaka was a monster. And, I mean, the crowd, they ran. (laughs) Tanaka moved in your direction, uh, and I didn't blame him much. You know, he was a pretty big monster. So Tanaka kind of forced the crowd back enough that uh, Homer and Norvell could get their hands on Ron Wright, and they drug him back to the ring, threw him in the ring, and Tanaka got in, chopped him, and beat him. So that was the end of the second fall. Now it left it left Ron in the ring. During this time, Carson's still laying out there in the highway, and he's screaming and holding on to his knee. You know, he's he's having a real problem with his knees. So his two buddies, the superstars, Dunn and Baxter, they, they've been buddies of years since he got there, and they were the ones that busted old Ron Wright's eye way back. They came out to help Carson. They had to physically pick him up and carry him to the dressing room. Uh, and at that point, I realized that Carson's hurt. He's really, really hurt. And so uh, the cops were still trying to get people to get back out of the way and return to their seats. So Don Wright at this point, now it's Ron Wright in the ring. He's lost the second fall. He's there. He's bleeding. He's by himself. And he's got three opponents. And uh, Don Wright comes out, Ron's brother, and he brings a towel with him. And he gets Ron over in the corner, and he's trying to get some of the blood off of his face. And the bell rings to start the last fall. So Don jerks his shirt off, and he jumps up on the apron like any brother would, telling the referee, hey, he's by himself here. I'm going to be his partner. So Homer gets on the PA. He sees what's going on, and he screams at the referee that Don Wright's not in this match, and you got to send him out of here. He's not going to be able to wrestle and help his brother. About that time, they just drugged Ron out of the corner there, and they started on him again. So it was a a bad situation, uh, you know. So they all three started started on him just like they had during the second fall. And the referee uh, started pushing. Don Wright jumped up on the apron. He's trying to get in the ring. He he wants to help his brother, which is, you know, understandable. And uh, the ref, uh, you know, has to go over there and try to keep him out of the ring. And the three heels, they just kept taking advantage of it. They were just really beating the hell out of Ron Wright. Finally, they beat him. They pinned Ron Wright. I think Tanaka actually pinned him again. Mm. And uh, then it was really, the crowd was really mad at this point. They'd already seen this deal with uh, Carson leaving him. And now the three guys had beat the hell out of him. They wouldn't let his brother help him. I mean, everybody's upset. And they're all blocking the dressing room. They won't let the heels that are in the ring, the three of them, back to the dressing room. Rob and Jimmy and Stallings, they come down with Don, and they all kind of help Don get Ron Wright back to the dressing room. Well, hell, Ron had been abandoned in the ring and and, and an obvious setup, so it's only right that his brother was there to at least try to counteract some of the slaughter. 
I mean, that was really wild, Ron. I do see why they called it the Southeastern Slaughter. That's just crazy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I said it was going to be a wild night, but this one yeah. ain't over. You know, I mean, there's more to the slaughter. You know? well, that's, I mean, that's, what else could happen after that? Yeah, well, I tell you, the, there's one match left, right? And it's the 90-minute time limit match between two baby faces, between me and Dick Steinborn. There's two championship belts at stake, and whoever wins is going to win both of those belts. So we go to the ring, and uh, the crowd's still buzzing about what went on. Uh, they're not settled down yet. I mean, this crowd is like... They're upset, you know, what the heck, this has been a bad night here, you know. And so uh, uh, we go about 15 minutes into this match, and Homer Odell comes down to ringside again, and he gets the PA, the, the microphone, you know, and he starts screaming uh, something about uh, what he said on TV the Saturday night before. As soon as he grabbed the PA and he started to talk, the crowd started booing so loud you really couldn't understand anything of what he was saying. In right. fact, they were booing him so loud that you couldn't hear yourself think. I mean, like he had taken over everybody's attention. And I thought, well, you know, he's ridiculous. What the hell's he here? So I just jumped out of the ring and, and I started to beat the hell out of Homer. What's he doing there anyway? He's got no business being there. So about the time I start on Homer, uh, the referee comes out with me. Because, you know, the Steinborn's standing in the middle of the ring like, what the hell do I do? You know, what's going on here? And, uh, you know, referees outside the ring with me, and then all hell breaks loose. Here comes Tanaka and Norvell, and they hit the ring, and they start in on Steinborn, the two of them. And, uh, and I mean, they're knocking the hell out of him, and and I'm still out there beating the hell out of Homer, you know, and uh, and he just kept covering it up, so I wasn't really able to hurt him very much. And in the ring, Tanaka cracked uh, Steinborn with a couple of those chops, and Steinborn now is bleeding. Norvell pile-drived him. Tanaka got over Steinborn over the top of him and uh, was was laying on top of him uh, on his stomach and uh, started chopping his back of his neck in the neck area. And Norvell went to the top rope and Tanaka moved out of the way and, and Norvell jumped off the top rope, landed on Steinborn's upper back, uh, somewhere around his neck and head. And I was kind of out on the floor knocking the hell out of Homer and I saw that Norvell's leap off the top Damn, when he hit him, uh, it was really nasty looking. I was like, oh, God, man, that had to hurt him. So I went in and tried to stop it. Tanaka caught me coming in and hit me with a chop and pretty much dropped me right away. And then Norvell drugged me to the middle of the ring. He laid me on my stomach like Steinborn had been laying on his stomach. And he put his knee on the back of my left arm to hold me down. And Tanaka sat down in the middle of my back, 300 pounds, man, a big old monster. I sit in the middle of my back, and he put his legs straight out on each side of my right arm. My right arm, left arm is sticking out, and Norvell is laying on it, and the right arm is laying out there. And uh, Tanaka sits on my back, puts a leg on each side, and he reaches down there and grabs my wrist like it's the oar of a boat in the water. And he just jerks my arm straight up in the air, straight up. And he mm. pulled it so hard, he partially tore my shoulder out. <laughs> I was like, God almighty, you know, and, and it was in that same area of the collarbone that I had dislocated about a year earlier, back in uh, August of uh, wow. 1975. So now the crowd's watching all this, and they, they don't know what the hell to do. They're stunned. I mean, and what the hell is going on? You know, they've already beat the hell out of Ron Wright, and now they're back out here. And uh, 
the babyface match, there was no violence at all in that match, but that match disappeared and it was replaced by a totally unexpected heel attack on both of the babyfaces in the same match. There was silence from the fans. And uh, sometimes silence is good. And uh, this, I guess, was one of those times when people really were like, wow, what in the hell is going on? So the three heels, they left the ring. And this time they they didn't have a problem getting back to the dressing room. They just walked straight back to the dressing room like nothing had happened. And uh, Homer had made good on his threat the Saturday before when he said something about my boys are going to get shot at championship belts here in the future. I can tell you that. He just eliminated two champions in one night, you know. So the policemen were the first people to recognize this. Something might really be wrong with these guys. I think these guys are hurt. So they came to ringside, and a couple of them even got in the ring to see if they could help. And my shoulder was screwed. I could tell, man, I was really hurting. And uh, and Robin, Jimmy, and Stallings, Malone, Don Wright, all the other baby faces that were in the dressing room, they came down to the ring to help. Steinborn was unconscious. He was knocked out, and uh, he, he was still laying on his stomach. And he had to be stretchered back to the dressing room. Uh, so I'd wanted to shock fans this night, and I needed to impress Tanaka and Homer and, and Norvell about, you know, we need to, to make this look really good, you know, and uh, sometimes in the heat of battle, so to speak, you know, bad things sometimes happen. And uh, what I had there was I had a war machine. Tanaka's like having a war machine. And then I got another dedicated great heel, Austin, that really wants things to look good, and, and things just went too far. Then the injuries occurred. Guys got hurt, got really hurt. So the final total tallies of injuries for that night was Don Carson out with ligament damage to his knee. I was out from partially dislocated shoulder. And Steinborn's out with a vertebrae problem and a concussion. So uh, Steinborn's still unconscious when they get him back to the dressing room. And when he started to come around, they discovered that he had a neck problem. It was more than him just being knocked out. He had injured his neck. And my shoulder was still just throbbing. It was painful. So uh, they called two ambulances. They took us to the hospital. And uh, both he and I went to the hospital. Neither of us knew exactly how bad we were injured. But in the case when you don't know how bad you hurt, the best thing you can do is go to the hospital and find out. So that's why I said, gosh, guys, we need to go to the hospital. I'm sorry, but you're going to get us some help. And going to the hospital is never a pleasant experience, especially in the case of where you've got uh, joints involved and uh, x-ray after x-ray after x-ray. And then uh, in Steinborn's case, he's he's really messed up. He's got that concussion problem and maybe a vertebrae problem. So it was a really nasty experience. Uh, the only good part about it was that we left there in ambulances. And the great thing about that is when that happens, fans really can't deny that you're hurt when the ambulance comes and gets you and they take you away. And the crowd after this, all this had happened that night, they never left. I would say uh, at least a third, maybe half of the crowd stayed until the ambulances left. And they lined up people on both sides and they rolled us out into those ambulance, me and Steinborn. And people were all along both sides uh, trying to touch you and trying to trying to wish you well and all that. So uh, I ended up paying for hospital expenses, ambulance expenses, and neither of us, luckily, didn't have to spend the night. But I was going to be out for seven weeks. And uh, Steinborn went home to Orlando, and he wasn't going to be able to wrestle for two months, they told him. So 
Don Carson, poor old Don, had a ligament surgery the following Monday in his hometown of Cleveland, Tennessee, which is just down the road from Knoxville. And uh, he ain't going to be back in the ring for seven weeks. So uh, Friday night, uh, June 4th, 1976, the fireworks came early for that summer of 1976. They began that night, and they began with a real bang, that's for sure. It sounds like fireworks and then some. What an amazing night. We're going to, this is a perfect spot. We'll take a break right here. We'll come back and we'll find out where we're headed off to next. The Studcast continues in moments right here. Super Studcast number 29, part one, with controversial Jim Barnett, has been one of the most popular ever at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Patrons around the world have enjoyed it immensely. Part two is now available and makes this the longest Super Studcast ever at more than four hours of fascinating history as Jim Barnett returns to America to become the most influential promoter of the 1970s. Hear the real interactions with Jim Barnett from stars of the past. Jim Cornette, David Schultz, Kevin Sullivan, and Charlie Platt, the Southeastern Pensacola television commentator. Part two starts with his ending the Atlanta War in 1974, all the way to his death in 2003 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99. Don't miss this one. Patrons say it's the best yet. Hey, welcome back to another Studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And Ron, where are we headed to now? I know you've talked about Australia earlier. This show is jam-packed. Their learning tree is still to come, so what's next? Well, we're going to Australia. We're going to take that long plane flight again. We're doing this every day. I'm going to do this as a tribute to every show uh, for four in a row. I'm going to tell Australian stories as a tribute to Jim Barnett, who was obviously the greatest promoter Australia ever had. So this one I'm going to tell this week is about uh, wrestling in another small town. We talked about one a couple of weeks ago, wrestling in a city called Rockhampton up in the northern part of Australia and where the crocodiles are, man, the saltwater crocs are. I mean, it's a nasty part of the country. This time we're going to be in another spot show, which they never ran before my dad got involved with Barnett. And this one is just in the city just south of Sydney called Wollongong. This one had never been run, just like Rockhampton. It was the first time they'd ever had wrestling live in Wollongong. And they're in a stadium that's set on the Pacific Ocean. I mean, right within 200 yards of the ocean. Uh, And it was a big old stadium. It had no top on it. It was like a high school football stadium, but one of them was really big. It was probably, uh, would seat maybe uh, six, 7,000 people. And it was totally packed. It was a really big crowd in the stadium that night. It was a full moon that night. I'll never forget being in the dressing room. I didn't go out and watch any of the first or second match. I think I was probably on third match. And the second match, I stuck my head out the door. And I was greeted by one of the most awesome sights I had ever seen in wrestling. I mean, I'm standing in the middle of a stadium. There's thousands of people there. They're all around me. When I looked out at the ring, beyond the ring was one of the biggest moons I had ever seen, sitting over top of the Pacific Ocean. All those wrestling fans there, it was just an awesome sight. I'll never forget how beautiful it was. In that night, uh, and the reason I want to talk about this one is because I'm going to talk about two guys here that are highly involved in Southeastern and in this same program that we're talking about. 
Don Carson and Dick Dunn are the Austro-Asian tag team champions. They are the big tag team in Australia of this crew, and they are in the main event that night. And after my match, I waited because uh, my dad, I think, rode down there with me to Wollongong. And we came back together, and we stayed to the end of the matches that night. And so I watched this match with Carson and Dunn, who were an absolutely tremendous team. This is 1973. They're fairly young guys, and uh, they really knew how to get heat, and they were great workers. And they're working with two great wrestlers, one from Greece named Spiro Sarion, and the other one from Italy named Mario Milano. Uh, big, big stars, big names, uh, great match. I watched the match. It was a fantastic match. But at the end of the match, <laughs> this is typical Don Carson. Don Carson got hurt. Somehow he got hurt, or this kind. He really got hurt in the Knoxville match. This time he's just, he's working. But he's selling it really good. And so he's in the ring, and Dick Dunn is there. And uh, Arion and Milano go to the dressing room, and the crowd's all giving them hell because they've gotten some heat in the match, and they've got some heat because they've been there and they've been champions for three months. So, uh, you know, they, the crowd is uh, hanging in there, and uh, finally they can't get anybody to help Don. And uh, none of the wrestlers will go down. I'm watching none of the heels. Maybe they've all gone home or whatever. No heels there. Nobody goes to help them. They, the Dick Dunn's trying to carry him, and the, the people are all harassing him big time, and they're blocking his way, and the police are half helping him to get back to the dressing room. And then finally, the police grab a hold of Don, and he's kind of bent over forward, and he's hanging on the Dick Dunn's back, and they just reach down there. One grabs one foot, another one grabs another foot, and one cop grabs a hand, and uh, Dick Dunn grabs his other hand. But they don't lay him on his back and carry him. They just let him drag, his belly drag. <laughs> so, he, so they got his arms and his legs, and his belly's almost dragging the ground. <laughs> his, his head's down on, the, down on his chest, and the fans are all around him screaming and hollering and giving him hell. And uh, when they bring him by me, I can't help but laugh. I just crack up. It's like, and, and I'm sure Don, as soon as they got in the dressing room, knowing Don, he was probably like, oh, man, that was good. Wasn't that fun how we got back here, you know? So those guys managed to have a good time no matter where they went. Uh, they were probably one of the one of the best tag teams that ever worked in Australia, no doubt. And uh, they were both in my territory at this time, 1976. This is three years after this happens in Australia. They're working for me, both great heels. And Dick Dunn, as I just mentioned, is about to leave Southeastern, him and Tarzan Baxter. Don's going to stay for another year and have a hell of a run for just about the entire time. I just want to tell that story because those two guys are involved in Southeastern. It fits in with what we're doing in Southeastern. And it was a that's kind of a tribute to Don Carson, who is no longer neither he nor Don are with us anymore. And uh, Don Carson was one of the greats of all time. And uh, one of the, the absolute best wrestlers you could ever have in your dressing room. He was so upbeat, having such a great time all the time. He made the atmosphere in your dressing room tremendous. And uh, I just uh, I never forget either one of those two guys, Carson or Dunn. That is just awesome. Another great story. 
All right, Ron, I think it's time we stretch our legs a little bit, get a cold drink, and sit under the learning tree once again. Let's do it. Today's learning tree question comes from a gentleman named Johnny Morgan. And Johnny asks, what are some of the common reasons, good or bad, as to why a wrestler would put on a mask? Great question. You know, and and the more I thought about this question before I answer it, you know, I think it involves a lot of different options and a lot of different reasons. And I'm not sure a lot of fans uh, have asked themselves, you know, that question. But I'm sure a lot of them have asked themselves, why do wrestlers wear masks? And there's probably as many reasons for why they wear masks as as there are wrestlers that do wear masks. Uh, Why do some of these guys wear masks? So I'm going to try to have some fun with this question today. Uh, First, I want to tell a brief history about mass wrestlers and why some of them wore masks, why some wore masks in my companies in particular, and uh, who were some of the most famous masked guys, and and maybe give my picks for my top five all-time masked wrestlers. So I'm going to begin with the first masked wrestler in history. And I'm pretty sure that this answer, you know, is going to be uh, refuted by a lot of people. Because, you know, what do you research something like this? How far, you know, how do you find out about this? Yeah. So, you know, I I Google it and and I find that, uh, you know, if you ask 10 people this question, I'll have probably 10 different answers. And and for people that say, you know, Ron, I don't believe your guy was the guy. You know, I invite you to to get in touch with me and tell me who your guy is. If you got a guy after you hear my my pick today, uh, and my story about the first mass wrestler, then uh, let me know. And you can go to my Facebook sites at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, or Ron Fuller Welch, either one, and uh, leave your questions and, and you tell me who you think it is. And the same thing on Twitter, you can go to Ron Fuller Welch here and, and do the same thing. So I think, uh, according to Google anyway, first mass wrestler in history was a guy in France, and his name was Theobald de Bauer. And uh, he was called simply the mass wrestler, right? Mm. I mean, what is the first mass wrestler going to call himself? They, he called himself the mass wrestler. And he made his debut at the World's Fair in Paris in 1865. And he toured France uh, in the 1860s after he made his debut as part of a circus troupe. And uh, then he came to America in the 1870s. So, and as I said, I expect there's going to be a lot of people that are going to have their own claim as to who was the very first mass wrestler. And uh, you can send me those answers if you'd like, and uh, I'd be glad to (laughs) maybe message you back and tell you you what I think of your answers. Mm. But anyway, before we get further into answering uh, this question that the gentleman asked, I want to give the fans my choice for my number five best mass wrestler ever. This guy's world famous. Uh, my father worked with him, in fact, many times. His mask was made from a woman's girdle. What? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, this guy's mask was not traditionally made like other masks. Uh, he made it from his wife's girdle, and he never varied from that. He always made his mask out of her girdle the entire time he wrestled. Wow. Yeah, he was very popular in the United States. But he was fantastically popular in Japan. Mm. Uh, he was so popular in Japan that when he wrestled, one of the, the most famous Japanese wrestlers of all time, a guy named Ricky Dozan, they wrestled on TV in Japan in 1963. 
do you have any idea how many people watch this? I'm sure thousands at least. 70 million. What? People. You're kidding me. 70 million Japanese watched Dick Beyer, the destroyer, wrestle Ricky Dozon in 1963 on television in Japan. Those are Super Bowl numbers right there. That's crazy. Wow. That's just absolutely crazy. Wow. So, you know, uh, that's one reason I picked uh, the destroyer. Uh, the destroyer was very much admired by wrestlers and promoters all around the world. A great guy. Like I said, my dad wrestled against him many times. Uh, he was very tough. And he not only uh, was very popular in Japan, he trained Japanese wrestlers for many, many years. He's one of the reasons that Japan has so many tough damn wrestlers. Uh, was it, it goes back to Dick Byer, the destroyer. So uh, let's start back with uh, answering uh, the learning tree question again. What are some of the common reasons, good or bad, for wearing a mask? Well, the first obvious reason is that a mask hides your identity. <laughs> to be that obviously, you know, yeah. and for an ugly wrestler, that could be a good reason for wearing it. <laughs> you know, right? yeah. So, okay. you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, he could wrestle as a baby face. Hey, wait, you, you, handsome you as most you, baby faces in the sport. You wore, a, you wore a mask for a while now. There you go. I, okay. I, I've been there, you know, so yeah. I have some, yeah. I have some history about this, you know, and, right. and right. quite honestly, you know, uh, a uh, ugly guy, you know, and don't want to be and wants to look a little different. And maybe he wants to try to be a baby face. He needs that mask. <laughs> so I'm going to stick that as one of my reasons right away. You know, ugly guys wear them sometimes so that they can probably be a baby face or yeah. vice versa. If you're a good looking guy and you want to be a heel, you need to hide your looks and you need to put on that mask so they don't really know how you look and you can probably get more heat. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a as a mask guy, then then you would if you're a good looking mask guy. If you're a mask heel, you probably get more heat. So I think most mask men are heel, and I think uh, probably seventy five percent, I would say, of all mask guys in wrestling were probably heels. Uh, the mystery of created by not seeing your face that allows you to be able to go either baby face or heel. You know, people can't see what you look like. A lot of people want to cheer that good-looking guy, and they want to boo that ugly guy. And uh, so you put a mask on, and it kind of changes things uh, quick-like. Another example of reason for wearing a mask to hide your identity, it's on this stud cast today. There's a guy on here that he has a legitimate reason for wearing a mask, and that guy was Leon Baxter. He was one of the superstars, one of the Avengers, and one of the, in this episode, the new Avengers. And uh, he was in law enforcement, Dothan, Alabama, and yeah. you're probably very familiar with him. Absolutely, yeah. So he wrestled always underneath the mask as either the wrestling pro for Southeastern Pensacola and even in the, when Gulf Coast Wrestling was there before I went down into that part of the country. And he never wrestled without his mask, and he probably shouldn't have. You know, so I think that's a good reason for wearing a mask, you know, I mean, uh, he can't let people know that he's a policeman and he probably couldn't keep his job and they wouldn't want him to be a policeman and uh, wrestling and with no mask. So, and as you mentioned, I wore a mask myself and I wore my first mask, oddly enough, in my first five or six matches ever. And uh, my reason, I had a reason because I was an athlete. I was on scholarship, University of Miami. 
And my dad wanted me to be a wrestler. So every summer, starting when I was a freshman in college, I had to make my dad happy and wrestle a couple of times every summer somewhere. And I couldn't afford to go and wrestle without a mask because I was a professional athlete. I would have been considered automatically a professional athlete if I was on a professional wrestling card. And that would have made me uh, in dispute with the NCAA rules. I would have lost my scholarship. There was real jeopardy there of losing your scholarship for real? Oh, yeah. They were very, very uh, strict on being a professional and being in the amateur sports. So, you know, if you were found anywhere and playing ball in college on scholarship and then uh, getting money being paid by being a wrestler somewhere, you were done. Bam, you're out. You lose your scholarship. You're gone. Yes. So, uh, you know, I kept telling my old man that, you know, and he said, well, let's just put a mask on you. And then when we put mask on me, I remember wrestling in Mobile, Alabama, one of those summers for the Fields brothers, Bobby Don, Lee Fields. And uh, I wore a mask and they came in and they said, uh, what is your name? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. You know, I mean, uh, heck, I've never wrestled but three times or whatever it was. You know, I said, I don't know. Pick a name. And my dad was there and he said, Call him Paul Bunyan. (laughs) (laughs) The old, like that old uh, cartoon or the old story of the big guy with the ox and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So so I wrestled in Mobile, Alabama under a mask as Paul Bunyan way back in the late 60s. So that was a very good reason for wearing a mask. You know, he's asking good or bad reasons. for For me, that was a really good reason. But at the same time, it was a pretty bad reason to be wearing a mask. You're not supposed to be wrestling anyway. Yeah. So uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pick my fourth choice. This is the best mask wrestler of all time. I'm going to pick two of them in this case. Okay. Uh, both of them are from the same country. Uh, they're both worldwide stars. And I was lucky enough to have the opportunity in 1983 to work against both of them. That was a real thrill for me because of their how famous they were. They're both from Mexico, and Mexico is the land of wrestling masks. They got a lot of masked men in Mexico, I'll tell you that. One of these guys was called the Man of a Thousand Masks, and the other was called Two Faces. And I'm talking about Mil Mascaras and Dos Caras. They were loved and admired, uh, not just in Mexico, uh, not just in Japan, not just in Australia. They went to Europe and they went to Africa. And I mean, these guys were worldwide superstars. They were loved and admired on many, many continents. Dos wore that famous. He had a two-headed eagle mask. It was famous. I mean, nobody ever had a mask like that. And he never veered from it. It was the mask he wore every match. And Mill, since he was called uh, Face of a Thousand Masks, uh, he may have had a thousand masks. I mean, you never saw him in the same mask. I don't know how the heck he got all of his masks made. Mm-hmm. So they wore masks because it was a tradition in their home country. But these two guys had much more than being just masked men. They were both tremendous wrestlers. They had great knowledge of the sport. They had great respect uh, around the world. And uh, I'm going to make number four, two of those Mexican wrestlers. Let's go back and talk about some. Some other reasons for wearing a mask, heel teams. Let's talk about heel teams, especially those heel teams that like to switch in and out of the ring often. And uh, when they did, uh, they wanted to get lost so that you couldn't tell which was which. Uh, yeah. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, and there was a lot of them. The, you know, you had the Infernos and you had all different kinds of them, you know. But uh, they were guys that were built, had the same type of bodies uh, right. that you could look at them and you couldn't tell which one was which. And then when they had the same mask on, you couldn't see their faces. It was impossible for the referee and sometimes even the crowd to tell which one of the two guys are in the damn ring. Yeah. So then they could work these great finishes in which, uh, you know, you got one guy beat and the other guy jumps off and the guy's back and he rolls his buddy out on the floor and he pins the guy. Right. The wrong guy wins the match. I mean, the heat that was generated from that type of advantage, it was remarkable. I mean, you guys that, uh, you know, if without their mask, they would not be able to get near the heat that they could get by wearing those masks, especially if their bodies look familiar. Yeah. So fans hated to see their baby faces lose simply because the, the heels made an illegal switch at the end of the match and got themselves a victory. It was like, wow, they, they cheated. You know, well, obviously, that was what it was all about. Well, I'm going to give you an example that I think is great. Uh, and these guys were both huge and agile, man. They were great workers for their size. Uh, and they were great at this switch. And that was the Assassins. Two big old monster guys uh, that could really wrestle. And uh, they could switch so quickly and so easily. And you could not tell the difference between them. So it was an excellent choice for those two guys in particular. And, and their success as a tag team was infinitely better. Because they wore a mask, and they it would have been if they hadn't worn a mask. So obviously, it's another good reason for wearing a mask. Those days are gone. You don't. I, I miss that. You don't see that anymore in matches. You just don't. No, you don't see those great heel teams that that you can't tell the difference between yeah. one and the one and another. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a lost art. And even if you think you know who's who, you still get confused about wait which one is which. So and you understand why the referee's confused too. That's, yeah. uh, that's interesting, though. That that art is kind of gone. Yeah. Wow. Yes, it is. So uh, I'm going to pick my number three wrestler. This guy got his first break, Continental Wrestling. Uh, he didn't begin wearing a mask until later in his career. And it certainly wasn't the customary mask that this guy wore. Uh, there wasn't very much of anything about this guy that was customary, as a matter of fact. He had maybe uh, more names in his career than any wrestler in history. He also took more dangerous bumps than any wrestler I probably ever saw in history. Uh, his mask was unlike, like I said, unlike anybody that I can think of. In fact, his mask didn't even cover his entire face, you know, but uh, I, it was considered a mask. And I'm talking about, and I guess if uh, you're out there listening, uh, you may have already figured out who it is, talking about uh, mankind, Mick Foley. Wow. He was a phenomenal athlete, got his start. First big break in Continental in probably 1988, and uh, you know went on to a fabulous and fantastic career. Yeah. Uh, his career spanned Jesus many many years and many many different companies he wrestled for, and he had more names than probably any wrestler. He was anywhere from Cactus Jack to Socko. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he could not tell who he was. Uh, you know, in uh, two months later, he'd have another name and another look. My number three in my choice uh, would have to be uh, Mankind or Mick Foley. I'm going to go talk about another reason to wear a mask. Okay? Uh, sometimes putting on a mask changes your personality. You know, and having wore a mask, uh, I kind of have a, I have a real feel for this, you know, because I've worn them. And uh, 
And, and I know that when you pull that mask over your head, uh, something happens inside you. People go, oh, that can't be true. But it really is. I mean, when you pull that thing over your head, it's hard to explain. It changes you. And oddly enough, it don't just change you mentally. It changes you physically. You, you feel more strength. Uh, you feel smarter in the ring. It's amazing what putting that mask on the do. And some wrestlers, in rare cases, they can't find success until they put a mask on. That's strange, but that's the case. I mean, there are guys that don't have success in the sport until they put the mask on. Then they put that mask on, and all of a sudden, they become these stars, superstars. So why that happens is impossible to explain. I got no explanation for it, but it happens. And uh, when it does, it's not only good for the fans. It's a life-changing event for the wrestler himself. And I don't think the wrestlers that this happens to uh, uh, realize whether it's going to happen or that it is even going to happen. And if they did realize that they were going to be bigger stars with the mask on, they would have probably put it on years earlier. You know, so some guys just by accident almost, they put on a mask and all of a sudden their entire wrestling career changes. <laughs> and in this case, this is a very good thing. It's not just a good thing for that wrestler. It's a very good thing for wrestling. And that leads me to my second choice for one of the best mass wrestlers uh, ever. And uh, I guess it's a prime example of what I just described. This guy, he almost seemed to stumble his way through many years in the sport. He worked in many territories. He drew some money here and a little money there. But uh, when he finally put the mask on, he became an absolute superstar. Wow, wow. Uh, it's, it seemed like everything he did in the ring, he got better in the ring. And, and his patented knee lift finish was absolutely dynamite. He became such a star that one of America's presidents and his mother, president's mother, uh, and members of that entire family were absolutely in love with this mask wrestler. Wow. Uh, and he was invited to the White House. And he was invited to the president's inauguration, but he was denied entrance to both of them. You know why? He refused to take his mask off. You're kidding. (laughs) He refused to take his mask off. That's how dedicated this guy was to his persona. At the White House. The White House. He was invited by the president of the United States to come to the White House and to go to my inauguration. All you got to do is take your mask off. And he says, no, I'm not coming. (laughs) So, and you know who it is? It's Mr. Wrestling number two, Johnny Walker. And that president was Jimmy Carter. No kidding. Johnny Walker was one of the most famous wrestlers ever in Georgia wrestling history. Not as Johnny Walker, but when he put that wrestling two mask on, he became an absolute superstar. I'm going to have to say Johnny Walker is my number two guy. Uh, then I got one more finish up here. The last reason for wearing a mask uh, involves what is uh, usually uh, the close to a wrestler's time in a territory. It's usually built around a long program with somebody. It's involved a great feud. It's had many angles between two particular wrestlers, and it comes down to that loser-leave-town match. Sometimes. Someone has to lose, obviously, in these matches, and, and they should be gone. And uh, sometimes that guy that loses is a babyface, and sometimes it's a heel. If it's a heel, the crowd celebrates. He's gone. Bye, guys. Get him out of here. 
If he's a baby face, it's devastating for fans. So almost every time these matches, these type of loser leave matches occur, the loser disappears. He's gone. Boom, he lost the match and he's gone. But sometimes when a baby face is over so strong that the loss of that star could cause the crowd to fall dramatically and maybe even never return to where it was before he lost that loser leave town match, then what do you do? You know, and if it's a heel that's lost and he's still got so much heat uh, that uh, business could fall dramatically without him, uh, then there's another way to do it. And mm-hmm. this is where a mask comes in uh, to make a tremendous deal of importance and territory staying strong when they have absolutely phenomenal talent. So uh, I'm going to give you an example. A loss occurred in Knoxville in the late 1970s when Ronnie Garver, who was a very hot heel for Southeastern in Knoxville, lost a loser leave town match. And the very next week, a mass raster showed up on the card and they, he was named Mr. Knoxville. Mm. And everybody knew it was Ronnie Garvin. And uh, they were just like they were with uh, the superstars and the Avengers and the Super Avengers. Him mm. coming back and not leaving like he was supposed to and calling himself Mr. Knoxville. Right. To make it even more insulting. Uh, the fans just really hated him. So everyone, like I said, knew who he was, but yeah. uh, they couldn't do anything about it. And instantly, the hottest heel in your territory who was had been beaten and was supposed to be gone stays and becomes even hotter than he ever was. So in this case, putting on a mask was not only very good, and, and it was very good, it, it was absolutely necessary. It had to happen. You didn't want to lose that kind of a guy. Before I finish up here, I'd like to thank Mr. Morgan for his question today. And uh, and now I want to pick my number one choice for the best mass wrestler. This one was a babyface. This is a babyface example of what we just talked about, losing a loser league. And uh, me <laughs> and my brother, and my cousin Jimmy, and several other heels tried for months to eliminate the best babyface in Southeastern and Continental Wrestling history. We tried everything, man. I mean, we really did. And nobody could beat Bob Armstrong. So we finally got him in a position to sign a loser leave, the territory match. Not just loser leave the town, but loser leave the territory match. And we diabolically cheated, as we did on several occasions. And we won that match. So Bob Armstrong had to leave the territory, was supposed to leave the territory. It, it was such a hot finish that night when we did this match that we prepared for all the heat that we packed our bags before we went to the ring and we set them by the door at the exit of the building. And as soon as we won, we fought our way to the back and we grabbed our bags and we went to our cars and we left the building before anybody else could get out there and get us. We came straight to the ring, went right to our bags and right to our cars and we left. Fans that night refused to leave the arena when it was over. I mean, tears fell. I heard stories. Bob and his boys told me stories. They'd never seen fans cry like that. And they mobbed him uh, when the match was over. He couldn't even get to the dressing room. He couldn't get out of the ring. People just came and mobbed the ring. And they were shaking his hands and saying goodbye and crying. And, And Bob, being the guy he was, stayed there for almost an hour in the ring before he went to the dressing room. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then after going to the dressing room and taking a shower, 
they came outside the dressing room in the, uh, the back of the building. There was a thousand fans in the back of the building that had been there for two hours after the match was over. And they just wanted to see him come out and just take one last look at Bob Armstrong. Wow. So wow. the next week, all of us heels gathered around the set of Continental Wrestling with Gordon Sully. We're on the big stage there in Boutwell Auditorium in Birmingham, Alabama. And all we celebrated, oh, the fans hated us. You know, it was absolutely horrible. The fans were just, God, you rotten son of a gun. Yeah, yeah. We were just all of us heels. We were up there celebrating, and uh, we were celebrating the end of Bob Armstrong. Oh, it's a, the day has finally come. And we were waving goodbye <laughs> for him to the crowd. Boutwell was sold out, thousands of fans. And they were booing us so loud you couldn't hear. Gordon couldn't be heard. Nobody could be heard. The fans were just, they hated us. And then we kept saying, he's gone. He's gone forever. <laughs> oh, we were all shaking and hugging and all that. And then all of a sudden, music interrupted our little celebration. You know, and there it was, bad to the bone. There you go. Bob <laughs> Armstrong's music. And the whole building went silent. Those fans just, it went total silent. And then uh, we looked, and uh, from the darkness on the far side of the stage, there appeared a guy, a man in blue tights. He was wearing a blue mask, and he had a letter B on the front of it. <laughs> and he started coming across that stage. And he was followed by his sons and the rest of the baby faces in the crew. And the uh, pop from that crowd could have been heard in Atlanta. I know they could have heard in Atlanta. I mean, that crowd just exploded. And uh, on that Birmingham stage that night, a masked man named the bullet was born, and the rest was history. Thank God for your question here, uh, Mr. Morgan, and uh, you know, thank God for mass wrestlers. That is awesome stuff. If you are on Facebook, simply like the Ron Fuller Tennessee Stud page and become friends with a living legend. At Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch, Super Studcast number 29, part two, is now available. The remarkable Jim Barnett story ends. Joining Ron for this one, Jim Cornette, David Schultz, Kevin Sullivan, and Southeastern Pensacola TV commentator Charlie Platt. And Ron, over four hours and still only $2.99, the best deal in wrestling at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. My understanding is the stories just go on and on about this incredible Jim Barnett deal. Yes. You know, it's been uh, fantastic. I mean, uh, I'm really proud of it and uh, just proud to be a part of it. And fans around the world are just uh, loving it. And uh, and I, and I want to thank all these wrestlers. You mentioned some of them in part two. Uh, part two just got released. And then part one, we had my brother and Jimmy Golan and Les Thatcher. I mean, so a lot of wrestlers wanted to get involved and they wanted to talk about Jim Barnett. It's just made this Super Studcast uh, one of the best yet. That's awesome. You and I had an opportunity to talk on the phone. I, th I think it was yesterday. And Charlie Platt was here, too. And anyway, we were kind of exchanging some stories. And I was learning a lot of things about Jim Barnett. But another exceptional job on a Super Studcast. And again, four hours for only two ninety nine. That is certainly worth checking out. All right, Ron. And what is the deal for next week? I know another exciting show is right around the corner. What's going to be happening? 
Well, before we get to that, Dave, I put a photo on this studcast, and I put one up for every studcast. It has a different photo, and this photo represents something special from this show, 149, and uh, it's a rare photo. Uh, in fact, I came across it by accident, and I was like, wow, I just have to put this in here. It has two of the six wrestlers that I named as my favorites in this one photo, and uh I put that on there, and if people would like to go to my website, tnstud.com, they'll find it uh, on the gallery, and they'll find it also under the studcast, the photo, and the photo is of the bullet and uh, Mr. Wrestling, too. And they're both bent over an injured Scott Armstrong in this photo, and uh, fans can find that photo if they'd like to go to my gallery or the studcast page at uh, tnstud.com. You'll be able to get a good shot of it. On the next studcast, we're going to find out how the pieces were picked up from this southeastern slaughter night. I mean, and we really basically had to do that. Uh, This all happened on a Friday night. The next day, we got to have a card for the next week, and three of our top guys are out. So I spent a night trying to figure out, what do I do now? And then what happens is uh, we're about to put back the pieces together again, and then we're going to create the biggest summer yet for southeastern. A uh, new baby face and another new heel are going to be added immediately. I got guys and people that have been waiting to get in. And this gave me the opportunity to call up a couple of big ones. And then uh, they're going to be followed a week later by a huge one. Bob Armstrong is going to make his first appearance. So uh, we're going to have our last Australia story in that weekly tribute that I've been doing to Jim Barnett. And the next learning tree question is a kind of special one because it focuses on my family. Also, uh, the next studcast is episode number 150. I can't believe it. You know, it's it's just been a great experience to be a part of all this. And to be able to be 150 episodes in is just really amazing to me. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, these family members next week to answer the learning tree question. And uh, and they, they want to know about... Uh, what, who my family members, some of my other family members were, and uh, and the lesser known ones. And uh, by that, they want to know, you know, the different last names and uh, what I thought of them as workers. So I like that question. It fits really well in with the fact it's 150th episode. I can kind of put my family in there as, as well. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And before we go, I, I, th- I want to thank everybody out there today for joining me. Take care of your family and, and others. Uh, whenever possible. And may God bless us all. Well, there's another great show in the can. This is David Summers reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We invite you to join us again next week as the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.